0: One of the uh, privileges that we have as uh, Christians is all of us have experienced some degree of blessing and some degree of what we call redemption. In other words, there's an area which we had to heal from, for example. And so uh, the privilege that we have is we get to turn around and share that with people. We get to turn around and love others. We get to turn around and help them. We get to turn around pray for them, give of our resources, our time, all of that. And so I love being part of a church that is very interested in being very involved in our community. Remember our mission statement? Going passionately out of our growing intimacy with God, a caring community for the county and the world, sharing Christ in word and deed. And that's part of our DNA. It has been as a church from the beginning. We go back over 100 years. It's amazing. It's part of our church DNA. So thank you, Tracy, once again for what you do. And I'm just grateful that we can partner with you. One, uh, one comment. The, uh, this week I was supposed to start a Bible study uh, on Wednesday night, a class on kind of how to study the Bible. That's not going to happen because I have surgery on Wednesday. Don't forget that. The so Lord reminds you pray for me. So we're going to postpone it a month. And the class is basically looking at how do you get from the text to life? Um, I think if I were to give you a five-minute discussion on 1 Corinthians 11, we would come to the conclusion in that passage that women should wear head coverings. That's what the text would say, but I bet we would all disagree. Well, maybe we wouldn't on whether we should do it today. So the question is, how do we get from... Text to life. That middle section is where it gets really fun and challenging. And uh, we're going to spend time in this class thinking through that piece right here. That's where most arguments occur. And that's where most of the splits in church occurs. What do we carry forward and what do we don't carry forward? So if you uh, want to keep track of that, you can look at our website. In fact, I'd encourage you to do that because we update our ministry lists on our website every time things change regularly. And so keep going to our website, and you'll see what's starting and what's stopping and what small groups there are and all that kind of good stuff. Okay, as Mark said, today we start a new series in Isaiah called The Lord Speaks. And the reason why we labeled it that way is because of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord speaks. Right off the bat, we have a blessing in a world, in an ancient world, where none of the gods spoke. If you go back and you read ancient literature on how they tried to discern the leading of the gods, they had all kinds of what we would consider to be very crazy and weird divination practices. For instance, they would take a liver and slice it in half, and depending on how it fell, that would communicate something to them. So the uh, the, the books and uh, procedures on discerning the will of the gods was very uh, complex, unusual, and strange to us. We have a God who didn't wait. He just decides to speak to us. The Lord speaks, and that's why we called it that way. Isaiah, let me give you just a little bit of background before we get into the study. Isaiah delivers messages to Judah, which is the southern kingdom. You may remember, and some of you may not know, David's son Solomon became... uh, King in his place, Solomon was. The Bible says the wisest man. Kings and queens and and uh, regents from all around the world came to hear him talk. He was also one of the wealthiest people in the world, and he ruled the nation when it was peaceful. But he himself was uh, not very faithful, especially toward the end of his reign. He had. Uh, because he could afford to do this, not only monetarily, because he was the king. He had a thousand wives and concubines, and they led his heart away from the one true God. So toward the end, the second half of his kingdom, you begin to see these seeds of dissent. You begin uh, and get work, work their way into the nation. You begin to see people starting to worship other gods, and they're moving away from God. So when Solomon dies, um, <clears throat> the kingdom splits. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Jerusalem is in the south. And so the ten tribes in the north, they, they have their own king. And the two, two in the south, they have their own king. And they begin a long series of contention and civil wars. And um, what is char- what characterizes both of these kingdoms is they really turned away from the Lord. It's hard to believe when you consider 400 years before he had led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and had done all this great work, and loved them, and spoke to them, and did all the things that none of the other gods had done, and yet they turned away. It got to the point, it became so bad, that uh, the, the temple was no longer in use, and along comes a young king who says, clean out the temple, and they, lo and behold, they find the copy of the law. And he said, what? We have a copy of the law that our God spoke to us? I've never heard of this. Read it to me. So he had it read to him, and he tore his clothes and put dust on his head and repented and said, we are in trouble. (laughs) And he leads the nation into repentance. So this is long history, long history. Isaiah is written to the southern kingdom because the northern kingdom is just about gone. Uh, Assyria, which is um, Syria's northeast, had decided they were growing in their power And they were taking over more and more countries. And they had come through the northern kingdom. And they had pretty much annihilated them. They had destroyed them. That's why they're called the ten lost tribes. Because the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. So, uh, Isaiah is writing during a time when the southern kingdom is watching this demise. They're watching the northern kingdom get dismantled. It's The Assyrians were brutal, very abusive, as is often the case in the ancient world, very abusive. And so they're watching this happen, and they're trying to decide what to do. So Isaiah is divided into three sections, chapters 1 through 39. They speak to a nation that's confronting the threat of Assyrian invasions. It's in the second half of the 8th century. So they're watching what happens to their divided uh, families up north. They're seeing the Assyrians come, and Isaiah writes at a time, because they're tempted, what do they do? Do they follow the Lord, or do they make peace with the Assyrians? And they have some decisions to make. Starting in chapter 40, that's language that you actually become familiar with. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there. Chapters 40 to 55, they address the exiles about 150 to 200 years later, because the Assyrians uh, did come and the northern and the southern kingdom got deported and taken away. So they're exiles now and it begins to bring encouragement to them about the fact that the Lord has not forgotten them. Then starting in chapter 56, Isaiah is going to give us messages to the people after the exile when they come back. So now we're 200 to 250 years later after Isaiah when they come back and try to pick up the pieces and start to rebuild something. So Isaiah is going to address. We're going to look at all those. We have a lot of problems. If you've ever read Isaiah, you'll know it's complex. You start reading it and you go, I have no idea where I am. Right? Some of you have read it, I'm sure. Even pieces of it. And and, and boy, it just gets all confusing. It's not historical. It's not organized the way we typically think or in ways that make sense to us. It's rich in spiritual energy, for example. It's... Um, it has lots of word plays, double entendres, drama, symbols, these very vivid quotes. It includes Hebrew poetry, colorful language. It includes songs, hymns, laments. So why did Isaiah write that way? In our culture, we just think, why don't you just sit down and like write a straightforward book on how to do this, right? Well, here's what God says, blah, blah, blah. That's not the way he did it. And the reason is because... And this is common with a lot of the prophets. Poetry is the language of experience. So I can make a statement to you, or I can tell you a story. You will remember the story, but you will forget the statement. Get it? When we talk, um, in fact, uh, last night with... With the high schoolers, we had this conversation when we talk about the authority of Scripture. What do we mean by that? For many of you, you tend to think, well, the Bible has authority, and so we should look for the commands and obey it. The problem is only about 20% of the Bible or less has commands. It's overwhelming story, narrative. So the authority of Scripture is actually shorthand for the authority of God as revealed in Scripture. That's why there's so many stories. That's why Jesus spoke in story. How does a story have authority? When a story, when you tell a story, in our culture we actually do this, what's the um, moral of the story? What's the teaching of the story? That's why Mark and I use so much narrative when we're up here because you'll remember the stories we tell long, long after you forget the principles that we try to bring to your attention. That's the way the Bible's laid out, and Isaiah is no different. So, rather than working through Isaiah, we're going to take a look at the themes that emerge. I mean, we only have about eight weeks here, so we're not going to we're not going to spend a long number of years in this book. It's it's a complex book. We're going to look at the themes that that, that arise out of that as the prophet addresses the southern kingdom and the problems that they had. At its core, Isaiah is about the Holy One of Israel who's dealing with a sinful and rebellious people. It answers the question, how does a holy God dwell with, live with, interact with a nation or a people who rebel and do sinful and stupid things? Does that describe any of you, by the way? You should all be shaking your head. It's going to ask that question. How does a God who is holy do that? Um, the first theme that arises is is that this one true living God is the holy one of Israel. That's the first theme that we're going to talk about today. He is the holy one of Israel. Now, remember, we're in a dark part of world history when everybody followed gods. Everybody followed all these gods who never spoke. Some of you have been with me overseas. If you come with me to India or Nepal, when you walk down the street corner, you're going to see gods every. Every hundred feet, every hundred feet, you'll find a little temple and a little God. And um, they never hear from them. All these gods, and they never hear from them. Our God speaks into life, and he, he interrupts our life by coming into it and meeting us. Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. God comes to us. We don't have to go to him. So the context of Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah... The problem is that Judah is living, that's the southern kingdom, as if it can ignore God. Well, that's a common problem today with us, isn't it? We ignore God often throughout the week. I'll be the first to admit that. The nation is living as if it can ignore God. They have seen the Assyrians attacking and taking the northern kingdom, and they're worried. They're worried and they're anxious. So uh, Ahaz, who is King Uzziah's son... He uh, is pro-Assyrian, and he hopes to avoid their wrath by entering into a treaty with the Assyrians. He has a choice. Do we enter into a treaty with the Assyrians and try to appease them, or do we trust our God and turn our faith back to God? That's his choice. He makes the wrong choice, and it backfires on him, as you would expect. They begin to look to the Assyrians rather than God, So in Isaiah chapter 1, the result is that they they have been led away. They're now ignoring God's moral law. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. "Hear, Hear me, O heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They have lost the relationship with God. They do not know who he is. When you get in verse 4, they become sinful. Ah, sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they've turned their backs on Him. Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before your very eyes. They are laid waste. Now, you've got to remember, the way you knew that your God was real was if you won a military battle. How else would you know in a world when the gods never speak? So if you were stronger and you beat another nation, another people group, your God must have been superior to their God. And so for these Israelites, this is a descending spiral. They're beginning to lose their faith, and now they're losing their military battle. So they're saying, apparently, our God's not real. They've walked away from God. They're religious on the outside, but corrupt on the inside. Verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. When you come before me to appear, who asks this of you? You're trampling my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings to me. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot even bear them. I mean, this is really powerful language. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. They are religious on the outside, but they are corrupt on the inside. And he concludes with this. This is the proof. Here it is. Listen carefully because this relates to us. Verse verse 17, learn to do right. In fact, in verse 16, he says, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's the final proof in any culture that they have lost their sense of moral direction when they stop caring for the people that cannot care for themselves. We should pay attention to that. But what does God do? God is merciful. He pleads with them. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and you are obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. He's imploring them to come back. Come back. Turn back. Our God is merciful. You will always find mercy. Always. Always. But if you resist and rebel, verse 20, you will be devoured by the sword For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord speaks. He doesn't mind. I had somebody tell me one time that the Lord won't turn his back on the church in America. Really? Tell that to the church in Europe. Out of which came the Great Reformation. All the truths. Now 5% of Europe is Christian. The Lord absolutely doesn't mind turning his back on rebellious people. And walking away. Wow. Chapter 5. The Song of the Vineyard. God reveals how he views the nation. We actually read this last week. I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones. Planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. And cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, grapes, but it yielded only fruit, bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, this is the southern kingdom, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? I blessed you, I rescued you, I saved you, I did everything for you. What more could I have done? And when I looked for good grapes... I found only bad. I found only bad. Verse 7, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. The final step in the moral decay of a nation is we begin to stop caring for the people that can't care for themselves. We become so arrogant and self centered. They produced only bad grapes. Their sin is breathtaking. In this context, Isaiah is transported into the throne room of God. One of the few times we get a chance to see this, hardly ever do we have a glimpse. Remember, the earth is our domain. Heaven is the domain of God. When you look in the final state in Revelation, that line between the two is eradicated. God comes to live with us in the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He comes down and he lives. That's the story of Jesus. So very rarely do we get a glimpse into the throne room of God. We have it here. We have it in Revelation 4. We have it a few other places, but not very often. So what we're going to learn here is something amazing about God it's a very rare occurrence Isaiah chapter 6 this occurs between the death of King Uzziah and his son Ahaz he says in the king that in the year the king Uzziah died so Uzziah was a good king he made some pretty he made a couple of mistakes but overall he was a good king he really worked to bring the nation back his son Ahaz did not his son Ahaz was evil Ahaz turned Judah away from following God and begun to partner with Assyria, worship their gods, serve their gods. So Isaiah is taken into the throne room of God. This passage is characterized by a series of unusual extremes. Look at verse one. I saw in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. This is a Hebrew combination of words, a way that they did it to emphasize. Uh, something incredibly powerful, big, to, to emphasize, to, to make the statement that it's large. High and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's, this Lord, is, he's very, very high. So he's brought into the throne room, and he's looking up at this incredible throne. Verse 2, the creatures surrounding God demonstrate that they are not allowed in God's presence without humility. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So even the creatures in his presence have to, experience, have to express humility. God is shown to be very, very holy. This is the attribute of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the only attribute repeated three times. As Americans, when we want to emphasize something, we usually say it louder. It's just the way we are. The Israelites didn't do that. They said it. They repeated it. Truly, truly, I say unto you, there it's repeated. This is the only attribute repeated three times. This is the core from which God does all that he does. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. This means that he is different. That's what holiness means. He is like nothing else in all of creation. Now, that's unusual because the gods, we found a lot of affinity, a lot of similarities between us and the gods. But our God makes it clear that is not true. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Allowing Isaiah into the throne room gives us a glimpse of the gospel. Isaiah has entered into a relationship with God. That's the gospel. We enter into a relationship with God. Um, Further, he begins to refer to him as the Holy One of Israel. God now relates himself to his people. I will be your God and you will be my people, he says in Exodus. And Now he's called the Holy One of Israel. God is both transcendent and imminent. That means he's about as far away as you can get and he's about as near as you can get. Holy, holy, holy. He is so different that it, you can't even describe it. There's nothing like it in all of creation. That's how different God is. He's that far away. But yet the earth is full of his glory. He's near to us. He comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. By the way, to destroy the earth is to destroy his glory. Here's one of those cases for creation care. It should be a central tenet of our theology. The earth is full of his glory. If we abuse it, We're making a statement about that. Isaiah recognizes his brokenness, and he's humbled in verse 5. Woe to me, I am ruined, he says. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And here you have Lord capitalized, L-O-R-D. This is the personal name of God. I have seen the one true living God. Up until now I have heard about him, but now I have seen him. And his appropriate response, I'm not worthy, in a very true and real sense. He recognizes it. So what does God do? He redeems him in verse 6. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So he is forgiven. So he volunteers in verse 8 to go to his people. I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us to tell this nation so they will turn back? And so Isaiah standing before the Lord and he says, I'll go. Here I am. Send me. Right? Here I am. Send me. So he volunteers to go. what a, a turn of events when we find out that the people would not repent. He volunteered for a failed mission. (laughs) It's going to be very, very costly to him when we get into it. This whole passage is characterized by three things. The fear and awe of being in God's presence. Aren't we grateful that God protects us from that? That he condescends himself to us. We don't have to experience that rawness. It's characterized by the power of God. It shakes the doorpost, it even says, uh, verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So it's characterized by fear and awe, the power of God, and the transcendence of God. He's so different than us that it requires his redemption and forgiveness. That's the God that we serve. When you begin to move into the New Testament, our natural thought is we should go to Revelation, because that's where this language is repeated but we have a stop along the way that affects you, all of you. John chapter 12. It's got to be, in my mind, one of the more theologically amazing, intriguing passages, John chapter 12. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still, these people around him, they would not believe in him. This is at the end of Passion Week, where we finished last week. He's just about to be executed. This is the, one of the last statements about his ministry. Verse 38, this was to fulfill, the people weren't believing in him, the word of the Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 51. For this reason, they could not believe, because Isaiah says elsewhere, and now this is right out of Isaiah 6, where we were. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. What happened in Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of Isaiah 6. Then look what it says. Here's the key verse. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So in Isaiah 6, I saw the one true living God seated on the throne and his robe filled the temple. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. He concludes that Isaiah saw Jesus. That awe, that power, that transcendence, that holiness, all the things that we saw in its rawness in Isaiah 6 is captured in Jesus, but we don't see it in Jesus' life. Here we have a glimpse of how God condescends to us. We could not handle that level of exposure to God. We just couldn't. But yet it's all still there. It's all still there. It just looks different to us. We are shielded by the rawness of experiencing him. The very next scene, John 13, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. He served the disciples, John 13, rather than creating fear and terror, as was Isaiah's experience. John 14, he comforts the disciples rather than demonstrating that, that earth-shaking power. He comforts them. This reveals what it looks like for us to display the power of God. It's the exact same power. The exact same power. It's just that We don't have to be exposed to the rawness. We don't walk around with lightning bolts shooting out of us. Okay? We don't walk around with the earth trembling. Jesus didn't do that. But yet, isn't he the perfect one, the holy one? Peter called him, you are the holy one. The language out of Isaiah. So he gives us a glimpse of how God comes down into our world. He breaks into our world without terrifying us and what we are to be like. He goes on in chapter 14 to explain that we will do greater works than he did. Isn't that amazing? That the apostles, the disciples, he said, and the people after him, you will do greater works than me. We do greater works within the Lord? Wow. Every miracle that Jesus did, the disciples did, except atone for sin. That's the one thing they didn't do. This is what the power of God looks like when displayed through us. You can't see it but when you live out your faith you are demonstrating that incredible power that shook the foundation of the temple when you live out your faith you realize how powerful the christian life is that's how powerful it is hebrews 10:10 goes on to say we have been declared holy for all time god decided to gift us with that same sense of holiness Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hebrews 10.10, By the will of God, you have been declared holy for all time. You share that with the Lord. Why? It's not for your benefit. It's for the benefit of those around you. Our holiness brings us into a redeemed relationship with this one true living God, So that we can demonstrate that power and attract people to God. This God. That's why. That's why. When you live out your faith in real ways, you're demonstrating that same power in Isaiah 6, the Holy One of Israel, but in a way, that protects the people that you're talking to. So when you say no to temptation, it's that same power that leads you that way. When you serve the poor, it's that same power being revealed in creation in a way that creation can understand it. The creation can't handle the rawness of God. So God decided, according to Ephesians, to to demonstrate and display his wisdom and his glory through us. But it's the same power Paul says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Don't be fooled. When you serve someone else, that's a demonstration of that same power that shakes the foundation of the earth. God is just doing it in a way to not terrify the people around us. Father, thank you. Thank you for being alive, for being real, for being the Holy One of Israel. Thanks for being majestic. Thanks for thanks for being so transcendent and powerful that we can't even begin to grasp who you are. And yet, you decided to take us as your people and move into our lives in a way that is gentle and a way that encourages us. And then, Father, you allow us to enjoy and share that power and display it in the way we live our lives. Thank you for that. Thank you for your kindness to us and for giving us a role to play, a purpose. We pray these things in your son's name because he represents you to us. Jesus, amen.